Good morning and welcome to Sunday at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Pastor Danny Deeth, and as we begin this New Year journey together, it is the right time for us to look around and notice that the world is indeed dark and broken in some places. How do we counter that? We do it by following our resurrected Christ who fills us with hope, joy, peace, and love so that we can help to build his kingdom on this earth. So come and join us as we seek to answer our call of the risen Christ. Come on in. Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 3 through 11, and then uh, verse 15. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is taken from Luke's Gospel. Last week, if you remember, and I know you do, We were in the Sermon on the Plain. It was comparable to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, except this was in a level place. Luke's gospel is a little bit shorter and more concise. Four of the Beatitudes we walked through last week as opposed to Matthew's eight. This picks up still in and on the Sermon on the Plain as we continue next after those Beatitudes. We are in Luke 6, 27 through 38. Luke 6. 27. Listen for the word of the Lord. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. 
Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do we really want to thank God for that today? (laughs) Love our enemies? No. All those against say nay. Nay. (laughs) Why in the world does God make us not only think and face our enemies, but to pray for them and to love them? That is foolishness, is it not? Don't we sometimes get that satisfaction from trying to stomp our enemies? From embarrassing our enemies? From leaving them in our wake as we ascend to whatever level or task we are moving through? Leave them in the dust. Ha ha, you say to them. And by the enemies, It's not as much, I believe, our national enemies, although there's some that applies, but more for us in our everyday world. Who are those people with which we have friction, who stand in our way, who have done us wrong, or maybe we have done wrong? We may not consider them enemies in the fullest sense of that word, but I believe that's who God is putting on the table for us. And there's nothing easy about this. A few quotes. Benjamin Franklin says, Love your enemies, for they tell you your faults. They may not be communicating it in the proper way, or they may be making sure that you are embarrassed or passed over or looking like you fail. However, Benjamin might have a point. Martin Luther King, in order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. Come on! I just want to hate my enemy. That's easy enough, isn't it? Don't expect your enemies to ever love you or ever like you, only respect you. Hmm, that's interesting. I think there's wisdom in that also. We can't snap our fingers and make magical connections take place. 
We can't always open ourselves, lay ourselves out there to try to bring some kind of reconciliation in a broken situation or environment and expect it to magically have a Hollywood ending. Sometimes things can be built and repaired and reconciled, and sometimes they can't, but that does not negate us from our obligation as Christians to try. And then finally, Mark Twain said, love your enemy, it will scare the heck out of them. And I changed the word. So what is this about and why do we have to do this. As Vicki said earlier in the children's moment, this is repeated again and again. It's not just here. Jesus says this several times. Paul says this. It is in the Old Testament. Love our enemies. Is that just an unreachable goal? Well, I think some of the Beatitudes in both Matthew and Luke certainly are understandings of what will happen at the end times when God's kingdom finally comes to fruition. All of the earth and all of our relationships, all of God's creation are redeemed at that time, and then we will be as we were created to be. However, until that time, when Christ broke into the world, gosh, just two months ago, we celebrated Christmas, right? Things changed at that time. That wasn't a memorial birthday party we give for the church every year. The world changed when Christ came in and brought and started God's kingdom on earth. And then when God started to build and teach and heal and reconcile, then ascended into heaven, the spirit descended at Pentecost, and it's been in our charge ever since and will be until we believe Christ will come again which could be right now or another thousand years or two, we do not know. Even Christ said he didn't know, so we don't need to waste our time trying to predict it, but we do need to be ready. And this idea of forgiveness is so crucial to our Christian understanding that Christ is saying we must be able to pray for even those whom we despise, even those who have done us harm. And we know there's a great spectrum here of people who just annoy us all the way up to people who really have harmed us. We see stories fairly regularly about victims, families, who have been harmed by criminal activity and somehow find a way to forgive and build relationship with the perpetrator of that crime. I hope we don't have to engage in that kind of forgiveness, but forgiveness is great and small and happens every day. In significant relationships of life, get an amen, married people, every day you have to choose to forgive or you don't. And if you don't, it builds up to the big kaboom and you're going to have to deal with it one way or another so you might as well get to it on the front end. I'm sorry and I forgive you are two crucial pieces of any significant relationships, whether those are friends, those are business relationships, employee relationships, marriages, extended family, and so on. 
Forgiveness is at the core of this. Loving our enemies is a big piece of that because it keeps coming back. It's like hell and the devil. I'd like to throw it all out, but I can't because Jesus talks about it. It keeps coming back through the Bible. It demands our attention, and we cannot pretend like it doesn't exist. So loving our enemies, we know that's a goal. We hear that a lot, but how often do we really seek to follow that? And why? Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in a sermon written in the Georgia jail and preached just after the bus protests in Montgomery, Alabama. Right after noting that hate is just as injurious to the hater as it is the hated, Dr. King says, and listen, stay with me, of course, this is not practical. True that? This life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog eat dog. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of humankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the uh, incubus of segregation. But we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. Those who say we are second or third class citizens. Those who think life should be different because of what we look like. Those who want to do us harm and keep us from full lives while staying fully oppressed... We have to love them too. This is the only way to create the beloved community, Dr. King says. It is so hard. It is so hard. So hard in those big societal ways and so hard even in our smaller relationships in our corner of the world. What does it look like to love and to pray for your enemies? Let's take another example, Joseph. Edith read the story this morning, great story at the end of Genesis, ends our Genesis narrative with this great story of Joseph. We know Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Remember his father Jacob gave it to him because he was his favorite out of the 12 boys. Joseph was Jacob's favorite so much, he made him the pretty coat that young cocky Joseph would wear around his brothers, <laughs> what dad made for me. And then Joseph had a couple of dreams at that time where he saw his brothers bowing to him, which he promptly shared with his brothers. There he goes again, punk kid, cocky little runt. How dare he? And so finally, Time after time, we know that his brothers try to do away with him. And at least they talk him into not killing him, 
They wind up selling him to a caravan, Ishmaelites going to Egypt, selling him into slavery. So Joseph goes and is bought by Potiphar. That is one of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, top guy, Pharaoh, just the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Pharaoh's captain of the guard's name is Potiphar. He buys Joseph to work in his home. And it's not too long before Potiphar sees the value in the leadership and says he can see that the Lord is with this young man. But it's also not too long before Potiphar's wife sees this young, as Genesis says, good-looking and handsome young man. And she tries to seduce him several times. Joseph says, no, no, no. Finally, she grabs his his coat and he squirms out of it and he runs out. And she gets mad and says, he tried to have his way with me. See, he has his coat and he ran away when I started screaming. Unfounded and untrue, but Potiphar throws him in jail anyway. While he is in jail, try to speed up our this segment of our story, he starts to interpret dreams for different people. Finally, for Pharaoh, has a troubling dream about seven cows and seven bundles of grains and wheat. And he says, hey, there's a guy in prison who's interpreting dreams, right? Have him come to mine. And Joseph comes, listens, and says, you're going to have seven years of famine. You've got to start now. Find somebody to start to organize and save corn and grains and bread, everything that you need to get through seven years of famine. Get somebody to do that. Pharaoh says, how about you? And he says, okay. And before long, his leadership, his relationship building, the fact that God was with him was recognized by all, and he ascended even as a non-Egyptian to the number two position in all of Egypt right under Pharaoh. Everybody respected him. He was a big shot. Then the famine comes. We're a couple years into the famine. And now all of Joseph's brothers and his family, Jacob the father, they're in a famine. They are in dire straits. They finally decide to go to Egypt thinking they've got to have some food, take whatever money we have, whatever we can trade, All the brothers go except for Benjamin. He'll stay at home and try to get us some food. So they come, and who do they talk to right away? Joseph. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. He messes with them just a little bit. He's not purely altruistic and wonderfully uh, uh, displays forgiveness. He throws them in jail for a couple days, trying to figure out what to do. He weeps all the way through this process for his brothers are back. He lets them go. Then he hides his favorite silver cup in one of the bags and puts money that wasn't in there, set them free, and then went and tracked them down. What are you doing? Make a long story short, too late, I know. So they finally come back, and finally Joseph says, brothers, it's me. It's me, Joseph. You meant harm for me, but God meant good. Through your act, even though you meant it for harm, you, God brought you here so I could 
keep us alive and keep our family alive. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel these sons represent. And so it is important. This is a linchpin in God's plan through Israel and then the rest of the world. How does Joseph get to that point? They essentially tried to kill him, sold him into slavery, left him for dead, altered his life. The first is his humbleness. He went from that cocky kid that had his father's favor to putting God at the center. When he saw them again, he said, this isn't about me. This is God has done this and God has a plan for this. God has brought us back together and God meant this to happen this way. So I will celebrate that fact. Joseph moves from being self-centered to God-centered. Or he could very well do what our world tells us to do. He could have had them all executed. He could have made a public spectacle. He could have gotten even with his brothers and family who tried to kill him. Those are worldly values, but he had grown. He had understood. He had opened himself to the presence of God, and he forgave them. So, friends, we are being called today to do the impossible and unthinkable, to forgive those who do us wrong down from the easier side to people who annoy us, all the way through to people who harm us. And make no mistake, this turn the other cheek business and the word abuse does not mean you stay in harm-filled situations. You get out, you get help. It does not mean Christ is telling you to stay in your place and be harmed. That is not what this passage means. At the end of the day, it is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Dr. King shows us what that's like. Joseph shows us what that is like. And today we are to go and to do the same. Through being open and humble. From actively forgiving and praying for others. Why do we do that? If we don't pray for our enemies, who will? If we don't pray for our enemies, how will they ever change? If we don't pray for our enemies, how will we ever be free from bitterness? Jesus said, love your enemies. Easy to say, hard to do. But maybe it was for our sake. Hallelujah. Amen.